Hello! And welcome to the one-dimensional checkers episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I am here with Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. I am here with Anna Shemansky. Hello. And we are going to talk about Donald Trump, who has been playing one-dimensional checkers on Twitter <laughs> with China. What could possibly go wrong? We are going to talk about Jay Powell. He cut rates. We haven't had a rate cut in this country for over a decade. That's kind of a big deal. We are going to talk about generic drugs, which cost more than you think they might. We are going to talk about Equifax, which is just, oh my God, what on earth? You know, we're going to be a little bit more coherent than that, but not much. We're just going to all sit around going, oh my God, what on earth? (laughs) We are even going to have a whole Slate Plus segment on the latest college scandal in Illinois. It's a jam packed slate money. So stay tuned. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Okay, this is going to be an amazing August episode because weirdly and strangely for August, there's lots of news and we are literally fighting with each other about what news are we going to cover. But the big news of the week, which we have to cover, is the huge events in markets this week because we had this one-two punch on Wednesday. Or Technically, I like to think of it as a one-two-three punch. That at two o'clock on Wednesday afternoon, the Fed came out with its rate cut announcement and they cut rates by a quarter of a point, the first rate cut since 2008 in over a decade. It's the longest that the Fed has gone without cutting since 1954. Huge, big thing. Markets kind of don't move, even though it's a huge, big thing. And then half an hour later, Jay Powell does his press conference. Markets move all over the shop because Jay Powell apparently, I don't know, is not the world's great press conferencer. And then after the markets tried to understand what on earth he was trying to say in his press conference. They all try and catch their breath. And by about 1.25 on Thursday afternoon, they've more or less caught their breath when bang, what happens? But Donald Trump commits Twitter. He comes out on Twitter because this is what he does. And he announces 10% tariffs on $300 billion of Chinese goods starting in September. And all hell breaks loose and the 10-year bond yield crashes down to unprecedented levels. And so 
all I have is questions and all that Anna has is answers. So I feel like Anna is going to give me some answers to this. Should we take this in like chronological order? Should we start sure. with the Fed cut and then do the tweet? Or are they kind of connected? This is one of the big questions I had. It's like, did Trump announce these tariffs just because that was the only way that he reckoned he could con- persuade the Fed to keep on cutting? <laughs> Which is interesting because if you believe the Fed funds futures, it in fact did have that effect. <laughs> So Yeah, Fed funds futures, according to John Others at Bloomberg, the probability of a rate cut in September went from 64% at like 124 to 95% at 127 after the tweets came out. It was a huge move. Because Trump trade war intensification means that the Fed will have to give the economy a little bump again because he's messing with things. There was a, there was a new word. There was a new word in the Fed statement this month. And people read the Fed statement very, yes. very, very closely. And there was a brand new word that they haven't used for a very long time. And that word is global. When they were explaining why they cut rates, they weren't talking about what was happening in the US economy so much as what they were talk they were talking about what was happening in the global economy. And what Trump's tariffs are going to do is they're going to have a deleterious effect on the global economy. And the Fed is now looking at the global economy. And that is what what the, the assumption that certainly the markets have is that means they're going to rate, cut rates again. Right. Because you really have to talk about these things together. Because when you listen to Powell's statement, you have much of it saying like, all of these things are going pretty well. And then all of all a sudden- of which things? In terms of consumer spending, consumer confidence, then... Certainly the markets for all-time highs. Unemployment, 30-year low. Exactly. But then you're moving into the trade uncertainty. And on top of that, you're... And this he doesn't say, but everybody knows is true, is that the U.S. rate was becoming a little bit of an outlier in terms of in relation to other rates. It was so much higher. The That's US, what Trump said in his tweet, essentially. The, the U.S. rates were at two and, a, two and change, and everyone else is basically at zero. In his tweet, when he complained, Trump tweeted after the Fed cut rates, he tweeted, like, this isn't good enough, essentially, and this is different from Why Europe. can't we have yeah. zero rates along, like, like, everyone <laughs> like everyone else? else. They all have zero rates. That's, Why can't I have yeah, zero rates? Let's right. also tax our banks. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so this is a good question, Anna. Is that... a uh, legitimate criticism. Can you compare nominal short-term interest rates in US versus Europe versus Japan and say, this isn't apples to apples comparison and the US is an outlier? It's not nearly that simple. However, if the US had not cut rates and moving forward continued to not cut rates, it appeared that the US was going to be on a bit of a different trajectory from the rest of the world. And that would have suggested that the US dollar would have strengthened quite a bit. So it's not that they're trying to weaken the dollar. It's that they're They're trying to prevent it from strengthening. (laughs) And and this is, I mean, at least Trump now seems to have decided whether or not he wants a strong dollar. Like there was this famous bit at the beginning of his presidency where he called in like his national security advisor or something at three o'clock in the morning and said, "Um, can you remind me whether I want a strong dollar or or a weak dollar? I forget. He doesn't forget that anymore. He is now 100% on board with the idea of wanting a weak dollar, which is, I'm going to say pretty much unprecedented, at least in my memory, like there was this running joke for decades that the only thing that the Treasury Secretary was ever meant to say about the dollar was this recitation of saying, 
a strong dollar is in the national interest. And you would just keep, they would just keep on saying that. And if they said anything other than that exact form of words, then the FX markets would freak out. Now we have a president who's like saying, no, we need a currency war. We need a weak right. dollar. And somehow the FX markets have managed to shrug that off. Yeah. I mean, the big takeaway here, I'd say, are like, maybe two or three main things. One, that the trade war is legitimately appearing to affect the economy. I mean, we're seeing that in business investment. That is one of the areas where we're definitely seeing weakness. So explain to me what business investment is. In terms of companies engaging in capital expenditures, like they're actually, they're the companies investing. So basically the opposite of buybacks. If if they if they spend money on, them, on themselves that's capital investment, that's business investment. And if they use it for stock buybacks, that's just giving money back to shareholders because they have nothing better to do with it. And what we're seeing is a trade war. If they have money because of the trade war, they're more likely to give the money back to shareholders and less likely to reinvest it in themselves. Well, I mean, it's just that in general, if you're thinking like, okay, am I going to spend a ton of money, you know, creating a new plant? Or am I going to spend a ton of money investing in intellectual property, whatever, when I have no sense of what's going on? Because- you know, tomorrow, all of a sudden, Donald Trump announces a new, a new like wing in this trade war. So it certainly has affected markets. And then also it's affected markets in another way. And it's affected global markets in another way, which is that we're seeing this global slowdown. And there are a number of things that are causing the global slowdown. However, it's almost certain that part of what's causing the global slowdown is what's happening in China. And then that's affecting that's also affecting Europe. Other things are affecting Europe as well. But we're seeing this manufacturing slowdown. And that's a big part of why the Fed did this as well. Right. If, if people don't want to like invest in Chinese manufacturing because they're worried about a trade war between US and China, if they don't want to invest in US manufacturing because they're worried about retaliatory tariffs, which is going to get imposed on the US by you know, any number of potential com- countries that Donald Trump could wake up one morning and decide he wants to be in a trade war in with. If they're not investing in British manufacturing because they're terrified about a no-deal Brexit, like that's a lot of places where they're not investing in manufacturing. And even if they do invest in like places that aren't China and the US and Britain, all of those places are potentially at risk of an American trade war. Like there's literally no country in the world that Donald Trump can't wake up one morning and decide he's not at war with. He's just this big global wild card that's really screwing things up for everybody. So and it's that's, what, and that's why well, the Fed is cutting, right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I mean, there's you could also make the argument that, well, although it's connected, right, is that they're doing like the what they're calling like insurance cuts. This idea that they want to keep this recovery going. And this is what happened in 95 and 98. You had this kind of a few cuts, not that it was supposed to be the start of like this long easing cycle, but that they were a few cuts to just kind of Juice the economy a little bit so that it would continue growing for long. So can you explain what a mid-cycle adjustment is? Because this is, like, if anything, the second biggest thing that happened in the markets this week, the first biggest thing was the Trump tweets. The second biggest thing was when Jay Powell comes out at the beginning of his Fed conference and uses the phrase, mid-cycle adjustment. And this sounds like the wonkiest phrase you can possibly imagine. But the minute that the words mid-cycle adjustment come out of his mouth, every single stock market just falls off a cliff. So explain what that is and why that's such a big deal for him to say. Well, so the issue is what he appeared to be trying to telegraph was that this isn't the beginning of a easing cycle. 
So it's not as though like okay, we're still in the tightening cycle, but we're cutting rates. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but the but the idea that like okay, he didn't want to say we're definitely going to be cutting more. But he didn't also want to say, but we're not not going to be cutting more. I mean, th- he did wind up having to go back on himself. And it's yes. it's kind of interesting that as he was talking, the stock market goes down. As far as I know, up at that lectern there, he doesn't have like a ticker showing what the market is doing. But fortunately, he does have a bunch of Wi-Fi connected reporters in front of him. And they actually say, um, excuse me, Mr. Powell, but while you've been talking, the stock market's been like plunging off a cliff. And he did do this backtrack thing where he's like, well, look, in theory, a mid-cycle adjustment could be that we've been hiking rates, and then we do a little rate cut, and then we keep on hiking rates. But then he said, but I don't think that's going to happen. He no, said, he, I think that it's probably more likely we'll do another rate cut than another rate hike. And then the market kind of breathed a huge, right. sigh, huge sigh of relief and came back up again. Yeah. I mean, to be fair to Powell, like this is legitimately really hard to explain because there are so many traditional economic signals that would suggest like, why are we cutting rates? So he has to signal like, Okay, we get all of that, but then we also have all of this stuff going on that in theory we're not normally supposed to care about. Like the Fed isn't normally supposed to be thinking as much about the global economy, which they obviously always have, but they're not necessarily supposed to. And then on top of that, he has to signal like it's possible we will have more rate cuts, but don't assume and don't start price again that we have more rate cuts. Why does I know he, you're already doing that. Why does he need to signal that? Well, because he, I do think legitimately Powell, and not just Powell, but I all of them do actually want to be data dependent and they don't want to feel that the market has so clearly like tied in rate cuts that they almost feel like they have to do it. They want to be able to actually respond to the data as it comes in. And so I think that's why he wanted to say, well, look, we're not promising either way here. But the fact is that the market has done a much better job of knowing what Jay Powell is going to do than Jay Powell has. But that's also because I do think even though he would never admit it, they're also kind of reacting to the markets, right? So, I mean, like, it's... These things aren't happening in a vacuum. I mean, like, he's seeing, okay, like, everyone's saying, like, these are priced in, these are priced in, these are priced in. Is that the only reason he's doing it? No, it's not. One thing I thought was interesting, it's more of a side note, but um, Ben Castleman at the New York Times on The Daily was talking about how typically the Fed doesn't really think about, you know, normal people, regulars, low-income people, inequality, things like that. So the fact is that a a lot of people besides Donald Trump wanted them to do the rate cut. And in part, that's because the expansion hasn't really trickled all the way down yet. It's sort of starting to, Felix mentioned a few weeks ago, like black unemployment is finally going down. And so a rate cut could actually be really good for people at the bottom because it puts more pressure on um, employers to, you know, raise wages and to hire more. It keeps things going when can finally we can see some economic Let, benefits. Right, I, I want to talk about the dual the pay scale. I want to talk about the dual mandate here because I think this is is super fundamental. The Fed has literally two jobs. It has one job which is to manage inflation, and it has another job which is to maximize employment. Right. And what's fascinating about what you're saying, what Ben's saying, is that in terms of maximizing employment, our headline unemployment numbers are good, right. but they aren't saying everything. There right. is you know, the employment to population ratio. We've talked a lot on this show about you know, how there are many fewer people working than theoretically could and probably should be working. And that's especially true in lower income communities and communities of color. And so the Fed 
in terms of maximizing employment, now has the opportunity to go ahead and do things but with a rate cut, which will improve the employment prospects of people who are out of the labor force yes, right exactly. now, but could come back into the labor force. And so that's a reason to cut rates. Then, on the other hand, they have this other part of their mandate, which is inflation. And for kind of, I want to say, the first time ever, the Fed has explicitly said, we are cutting rates in order to get inflation up to the level where we want it to be at. It has been too low for too long, and we are not comfortable with that, and we want it to be higher. And, you know, inshallah, if we manage to get things right with this rate cut, inflation will rise to where we want it to be. And I can never remember the Fed ever doing that in the past. It's always been you know, we raise rates to prevent inflation. Never we cut rates to create inflation. And that, I think, is is kind of historic. Well, but you have had we keep rates extremely low because inflation isn't high enough, right? Right. So it's a, a similar, similar idea. But they but, you know, this is this is something which they could have done a year ago. You know, there wasn't any inflation a year ago and they didn't cut rates a year ago. But and there isn't inflation any 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 inflation now and they're cutting rates now and they're saying, well, part of that is because there isn't any inflation. You're like, well, why didn't you do it a year ago? Right. Now? No, this is though on the one hand, it is very clear that I think part of why they're doing this is also because they probably hiked too much last year, right? But one So the, is this an admission that they made a mistake? They will never say that, of course. They will say, like, no, this is clearly because data changed, but we all kind of know, right? But the the point I do want to make though is that if you look at the history of the last like, you know, 50 years or so of monetary policy, like since the Fed became its kind of modern form, the Fed always makes mistakes. They constantly make mistakes. It's just that what they do is still so much better than anything else we any other our options. But I think sometimes there's this idea that like the Fed making mistakes now is a new thing. It is it, it just every single cycle they either cut too early, they cut too late. It's it's because no one really knows. Nobody knows where the neutral rate is. No one knows where, you know, our start. Nobody knows any of this. It's all just kind of working with the data that they have and trying to do the best that they can. So did they get it right? I mean, I feel like in terms of the rate cut, most people are like, yeah, okay, maybe they got it right. They should have cut rates. The criticism, I think, more came in terms of the press conference. But certainly in terms of what Donald Trump immediately after the rate cut came up, came out and said, no, I'm sorry, this rate cut was shit. You should have cut by twice as much. And you should have made it clear that you're easing. And I want you to be on the path down to zero. And I'm going to raise, well, he didn't quite say, I'm going to go raise tariffs. He's such a little baby. <laughs> but I think that he has people on his side who aren't babies. There are definitely people out there saying inflation, if you genuinely want 2% to be a symmetrical target for inflation, and we haven't been at 2% in a decade, then you need to be much more aggressive about getting inflation back up to your target. Right. And I, so two things, sir. One, I think you're right. I also think, even though the Fed has never said it before, I do think it is important now that the that the Fed is saying we actually want to try to get more people into the workforce. I think that that is, that is really important. But I also think there's something else to think about here when it comes to the trade war and this idea that Trump's activities are potentially getting the Fed to cut rates more. So the reason that he's doing that is because in his mind, if we cut rates significantly, we're going to have this huge boom in the economy. But the reason that the Fed would be cutting rates is because his stupid trade war is having a negative impact on the economy. So like, this is the thing, like, 
it it's it doesn't work. Yeah. I don't think Trump understands. I'm pretty sure that he he doesn't understand the connection between his trade war really and interest rate. No, I think, I think and, and I have I actually talked his... to Jonathan Swan. Uh, you know, he amazing. Knows he knows stuff about Trump. And what what Swan said to me. This is the the chief White House correspondent Axios. Um, what he said to me is no, like Trump is not doing like whatever the Trump version of 4D chess and like you know starting a trade war because he wants something the Fed to do something. No, he is starting a trade war because he thinks that the Chinese promised to buy a bunch of agricultural goods and then went back on that promise and he's angry and so he's like throwing his toys out of the pram. Something something fentanyl. <laughs> and that's genuine. Like it's he's. The one thing you can say about Trump's tweets, <laughs> you know, as as like you know, as as weird and childish as they may be, is they're nearly always genuinely honest. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't have a filter there. No, there's lies in the tweets. Come honest on. in terms of what he's thinking, yeah. not honest in terms of actually factual. Okay, yeah, like they're just from his um, like lizard brain, basically. Yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. that's fair. That's fine. And so, yeah, I think honestly, it doesn't feel like it here when. These things come in such quick succession. But I think it was a coincidence. Oh, it was 100% a coincidence. I just was talking to some academic and she was explaining that there's this bias people have towards, you know, like powerful white men where when they make mistakes, you assume it's strategic. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so you think, oh, they're smart and they know what they're doing. This is all. This is all strategy. This is all um, so cunning. They're playing. Right. What is it? Three dimensional chess. When it's yeah. just like they're screwing up. And if it was anyone else, if it was like a woman or a person of color, we'd be like, oh, they're really messing up. They don't know anything. But with people like Trump or like Boris Johnson or something, we think it's their strategy to play dumb. Right. No, they're just dumb. Exactly. It's it's one dimensional <laughs> checkers. Is yes. what he's playing. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Oh, uh, you found your Pfizer. I did. It was just on the back of the Fed. The Fed <laughs> Look at that. I found my Pfizer notes. What do they say? Uh, okay, okay. They say that on Monday, Pfizer announced that it was giving its off patent arm to Myelin Pharmaceuticals in a big drug deal. Um, <laughs> a different type of drug deal. <laughs> Big drug deal. Big drug deal. Um, their CEO. This is not kilos of cocaine in suitcases. No, it's but this is Viagra. Lipitor, <laughs> Viagra, a bunch of formerly patented drugs did that you, were extremely that, profitable I did for not, Pfizer. I did not know that Viagra was off patent. I think it was just in the past few years. You can write in and tell me if but, I'm but wrong. Apparent, my card. Is there like a generic Viagra I can get now? Yes. Were I so inclined? <laughs> I mean, as, as, a, as a habitual Viagra pub, I would love to save money on my Viagra habit. Um, so um, their CEO at Pfizer, he, his strategy is to focus on just patented drugs and get rid of all the other stuff. And they did a deal also, I think, this year where they got rid of like some over-the-counter kind of drugs. They gave that stuff like Advil to Glaxo. So he just wants to narrowly focus on patented drugs, which is kind of a gamble. And I, I it's not clear to me like why he thinks it's going to work, actually. His focus is supposed to be on kind of innovative, especially cancer drugs and this kind of like new classes of drugs. 
And partly this has to do with just the generic market in general has become significantly more competitive. And it's just very, very hard for people to make money in it. So Pfizer is thinking, okay, like this is just going to be a a drag on us. So let's focus our efforts. Although, honestly, there are a lot of market participants who agree with you, Emily, who who think that this actually was not a good move. I I think this actually made them less diversified. Yeah, because generics and over-the-counter drugs give you a steady stream of revenue and patented drugs. I mean, that's really like that's like playing. That's gambling. That's the lottery. Like you get you could get a Lipitor, you get a Viagra, but there are other drugs that are duds. Like they had a couple of drugs they had to they abandoned an Alzheimer's drug recently, a, a Parkinson's drug. Um, There's some other drugs they so got rid of. I mean, it's I, not I easy. see it. I see it a slightly different way, which is that then basically taking over Mylar. Is it Mylar or Mylan? Mylan. 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 There you go. And Mylar is the shiny stuff that you wrap yourself in after a marathon. Mylan is the company that was really suffering on the stock market. It went through a whole bunch of negative publicity about EpiPens. And what Pfizer is doing, if you look at this, is they're basically kicking out all of the senior management of Mylan. They're replacing them with Pfizer people who are taking with them all the Pfizer drugs. And what you basically have is Pfizer people running the off-patent portfolio of Pfizer drugs at a company with a name that isn't Pfizer, but it's still basically Pfizer. And they're adding to their portfolio the EpiPen and a bunch of other Mylan drugs. And then what you're really doing is you're seeing Pfizer splitting in two. You know, you're seeing Pfizer splitting into the patenty bit and the off-patenty bit. They're adding a bunch of Mylan drugs to the off-patenty bit. And then shareholders can make the decision, like, do we want to invest in patented drugs, in which case we buy Pfizer? Do we want to invest in off-patent drugs, in which case we invest in Mylan? And you allow the shareholders to decide which one they want to hold. I So in that sense... I don't think that strategically it's it's so silly. If if you like the Viagras and the Lipitors and even the EpiPens, then you buy Mylan. If you like the monopoly profits you get from patented drugs, you buy Pfizer. And if you kind of like them both, you buy them both. And for Mylan, this also does make some sense because they do need to be able to generate a bit more cash. Because even though this deal is there, the new company is going to have a significant amount of debt on it. Part of the reason Mylan is doing that is even though that is the case, they still will technically be less levered than they currently are. And like specialty generics don't necessarily make a ton of money, but specialty generics do. And they're going to be bringing that in. And then so in theory, it's going to be easier for them to pay down their debt as well. And maybe there's a Pfizer, which might be boring, but it's important. <laughs> when other Pfizer drugs go off patent, maybe they can, Mylan can get in there first because whatever generic company gets to the off patent drug first, they get like a mini monopoly. You know, when something so goes off patent. One of the very interesting things that has been happening in pharmaceuticals for the past few years is the massive price hikes of off patent drugs. This is what um, what was that company that you know? Oh, the worst that, person in the world, Martin Shkreli. Not, not Martin Shkreli. No. Um, Anyway, a bunch of different companies who aren't just Martin Shkreli would do this. <laughs> Mylan did it with the EpiPen. Yeah. It was Valiant. It was big companies whose entire business model was we buy up drugs which are cheap because mm-hmm. they are off patent. And what we do is we make them expensive. And what the 
economics 101 says is that if you make them expensive, well, because they're not patented, any number of other people can come in with the identical drug and sell it for cheaper. In reality, given the strictures of FDA approval and various other things, that doesn't happen. And you can raise the prices of drugs, including EpiPens, but many other things as well, by thousands of percent. You can take bills that used to cost 50 cents and start selling them for $50, and no one will come in and price compete you down. This is what's happening with insulin right now. Like The cost of insulin in the United States has been going through the roof, even though insulin has obviously been off patent for decades. It's disgusting. Although, and, I, although, yeah, although I will say that the vast majority of actual consumption of drugs is our generic drugs in the mm-hmm. United States. Yeah. Right. That's, Spending, that's the problem. R- right. But they're not necessarily, they, they're lower cost generic drugs. You're not necessarily, I mean, it is true that there are instances of what you're saying that is accurate. Although in the actual overall generic market, it's becoming much more competitive and prices have been coming down. That's the other thing. There's this new book out about generic drugs, which is saying that insofar as they are coming down, even that isn't great because a lot of them are being made in India in factories that the FDA has very lax control over and a kind of, to put a technical term, shit. Yeah, I'm, I mean, it's it's interesting. I think that if you look at the drug market in developed markets versus the drug market in developing markets, although what this particular book says is really interesting and I think somewhat disturbing, in general, the regulations we have around generic drugs have enabled a generic market where people can get more competitive costs for these for drugs that are off patent for a lot of these drugs. That is not the case in developing markets where almost all the drugs that are being purchased are not generic. The reason is because they really can't trust the drugs are good. It's like 10 percent or so of the drugs are not good. And so then people just don't use them at all. And part of the reason for that is because the regulations that you have in a lot of developing markets are not regulations that actually make things safer. They actually make things less safe because they make it really hard for different competitors to come in. They protect local monopolies. Sure. But the fact is that there are a bunch of U.S. generics which are, you know, prescribed to people at U.S. pharmacies down the street in, you know, Boise, Iowa. And is that a place? No, Idaho. Boise, Idaho. Idaho. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, yeah. My 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 U.S. geography is 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 a bit weak today, but the you know normal drugs prescribed by normal pharmacists in normal towns, which are made in generic drug factories in India. This happens the whole time, and the FDA says that it holds those generic drug factories in India to exactly the same standards as it would any drug manufacturer in the U.S. And no one really believes that. And there are many hospitals in America and doctors in America who literally refuse to prescribe the generic, not because they think that a generic is intrinsically worse, but just because they don't trust the manufacturing process. So one, I think that this is interesting, and I actually would be interested at some point to have the woman who wrote that book Mm -hmm. on, because I I think it sounds um, fascinating. And one of the things she points out is that part of the problem is that in the U.S., if you have factories, you can just – you do – when the regulators come, they don't announce they're going to come. But when the factories that are in India and China, they very much announce that they're going to come. And so what ends up happening, at least if this book is to be believed, is that they will basically make things appear much safer than they actually are. And like she noted one person, like she someone caught them like shredding documents Mm -hmm. showing that they had, you know, sold insulin that had pieces of metal in it. So don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. Bad thing. So I, I very much agree that that I'd be curious to see actually how big of a problem this is. My only issue is that 
if I were to say what is actually the really, really globally big problem with the generic market, it is in developing markets where it's so hard for good generics to get in and for actually the types of regulations to get in that would actually make people safer. Right. Which which is why all of these new attempts to create nonprofits, which make high quality generic drugs in the US are but just awesome. Not, right. And you don't even and it's also just you, you like you have a limited s- supply of regulators. And so what you want is people to be spending their time figuring out where there are fakes and getting rid of them and actually doing that. What you don't want is people to be spending all of their time having to go through all of these like ridiculous processes to register different things that have nothing to do with safety. It's simply about maintaining local monopolies and getting people to be able to take bribes here and there. So part of it is just having actually smart regulations more than any, like you could then allow the market to work well. Which is, you know, I mean, so I'll, I'll put this back to you. Who is the best pharmaceutical regulator? Who should we put in charge of regulating generic drugs and signing off on them globally so that no matter where they're made, we can trust that they're good? No, I mean, and and that's a good point. I mean, I think that the FDA has, it it appears, again, I don't know the ramifications of what the woman says in this book. I don't know like how far that actually goes. In general, it appears that the FDA has actually, for the most part, done a pretty good job because most people take generic drugs and they work well. So that would appear. Now, does that mean the FDA should be the regulator for the world? I don't know. I I don't think the FDA should be the regulator for the world. But I do think that what we're seeing with this Pfizer-Mylan merger is that people are really interested in off-patent drugs as a massive profit center. And the combined company is going to be worth a lot of money. And my gut feeling, just as someone who vaguely understands Economics 101, is that off-patent drugs shouldn't be worth anything. Like, it's no secret how to make them. And the marginal cost of making these drugs is basically zero. And so when you look at a company like that, which is worth billions of dollars and has no patents to its name, you wonder, like, wait, why are they worth so much money? Shouldn't those prices be competed away? Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so my numbers round last week was $125, which is the amount of money you get if you sign up for the Equifax settlement. And all you need to do is go online and like everyone will get $125 and we're all going to be rich. No, and Felix. So, no. So many things were <laughs> wrong about that. So a major mea culpa. I apologize to all of you. Number one, thank you for everyone who wrote in yes. to say, wait, hang on a sec. I don't actually qualify. It turns out a bunch of you don't qualify. So it's not everyone. If you don't qualify, don't feel sad because it turns out you're not missing out on $125. After all, we don't know how much money you are missing out on, but it's going to be much less than $125 because it 
turns out, that even though 147 million people were affected by this breach, the total amount of money that Equifax put aside as part of this FTC settlement to give each of those 147 million people $125 was $31 million. Now, I'm not very good at math, but I'm going to say that 147 million times 125 is a lot more than 31 million. That is accurate. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's confounding that this happened. And then this week, the FTC, right, they put out a release saying, hang on, you're not probably not going to get that $125. So you are instead, certainly not going to get that $125. You should, you should opt for the free credit monitoring Which service. is worth much more than Allegedly. whatever it is you're going to get. And this is the bit which I, I like steam started coming out of my ears. <laughs> like, number one, they basically now have made it impossible to apply for the $125. Not 100% impossible, but 99% impossible. The lovely little page which says, you get $125, click here. That page basically doesn't exist anymore. Now it's just like, sign up for free credit monitoring here. And if you want the $125, Good luck to you trying to work out how to apply for it. So they know how many people have signed up. It's millions, I think. I've they can do the math. They can divide $31 million by the number of people who have signed up. And they can work out how many dollars we're actually going to get. And the FTC refuses to announce what that number is. And I don't understand why they're being so coy about that. Well, there was a piece in Slate that's really dug into the Equifax settlement. And it said that after four and a half years, the $31 million cap lifts. And there's yeah, more the, money it, that, that comes So in. it is conceivable that after four and a half years, you, you might get a four and a half years, get Let's put that to one side for the time being. The, the other weird thing is that if you want the free credit monitoring, you have to give up any cash. And this also makes no sense to me. Like, if free credit monitoring is a good remedy for having been hacked, effectively, then shouldn't everyone who was hacked get the free credit monitoring? I don't entirely understand why it should be an either or thing. Anyway, well, because I think and, it's supposed to Anna be. Anna like... here to explain. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> because none of this makes any sense. Well, no, when I... nothing makes any sense, I ask Anna <laughs> to explain it. Well, I would say the the credit monitoring thing makes some sense to me because it's, you get the hundred and twenty five dollars if you don't already have credit monitoring. So the point is, you're supposed to have credit monitoring either way. You either have it or they're going to give it to you. And the point is, well, if you already have it, then you've already paid for it. So they're saying, well, then that's not entirely fair if you're eligible. So now we're going to give you this cash. Oh, I it's see. So everybody everybody right. gets credit monitoring, but if you already have credit monitoring, then you have to get something. So what right. we'll give exactly. you is one hundred twenty five. It's yeah. all such bunk, first of all. Equifax, do you remember back when this this hack happened and Equifax revealed that, you know, they had a, a breach and it took them months to really come clean about what had happened and they kind of lied about it? Then they offered credit monitoring to people for free, which like no one wants to have their a credit rating in the first place. It's kind of this ridiculous, arbitrary. <laughs> no, actually thing we that, do. We really do. No, <laughs> no we don't. I don't. No, think, actually we do because well, if I'm we not done. No. And then so then they said everyone can have free credit monitoring. Then they stuck an arbitration clause into the free credit monitoring. So right. you sign away your you know, your right to sue Equifax, which obviously cannot be trusted to monitor one's credit because they can't or even be trusted with the freaking data they have. You can't even trust them to turn up on Thursday at seven o'clock. Yeah, yes. I mean and then like and and now they, they go through this whole settlement and Everyone should just get $125. Everyone should get $500. Give everyone as many dollars as give, possible. Give as many, as many dollars because as possible. But the thing which annoys me the most is that 
for all the it's incredibly easy to get annoyed at Equifax here it's because they are easy. a very bad company and it's even Anna is not going to I defend I am I'm nodding I'm nodding <laughs> Even Anna is not going to defend Equifax somehow the FTC seems to have been captured and they are coming out on the <sighs> internet and saying hey the value of this credit monitoring is worth hundreds of dollars. It's worth much more than $125, let alone is even more than the amount of money. You're and so the FTC is buying into this idea that credit monitoring services are worth hundreds of dollars. Now, if you are a regular Slate Money listener, you will know there's many ways of getting credit monitoring services for free. And it's a very lovely thing to have if it's free. If you want to give it to me for free, I'll take it. Like, honestly, it's great. But don't ask me to pay for it. And certainly don't try and persuade me that it's worth hundreds of dollars, because it isn't. Basically, if you want to protect yourself against identity theft, freeze your credit. That is free. You do not need to pay a penny for that. Do it with all three credit rating agencies. You can do that as a one many one-stop shops. Do that, and it's free. If you want to know what your credit score is, there's a bunch of free services which will tell you what your credit score is. If you want to sign up for credit monitoring services from Equifax, by all means do that, but don't let the FTC tell you that this is worth hundreds of dollars a year, because it isn't. And if the next time you see a web page saying, you get $125 just by filling out this form, don't believe it because there's always going to be a small print saying, well, actually, you only get that if less than 27 people sign up. And if like it's all over Twitter, then forget about it because you're going to that 31 million is going to wind up getting divided between God knows how many people. And especially if it's in Felix 20. Salmon's number. <laughs> <laughs> I'm holding out hope for 2024 that in four and a half years, this cap will lift and I'll get a shock surprise check in the mail and I'll go out and buy whatever $125 gets me in 2024. Maybe not a lot. Are you worried about inflation? <laughs> the Fed keeps cutting rates. What could happen? I don't know. <laughs> okay, let's have a numbers round. Anna, you have a number. I do. You do have a number. What's your number? My number is $3 million. So that is the amount of money that Kyle Buga Geerdorf one. Kyle Booger. Wait, is this a Fortnite number? It is. Oh, I love Fortnite numbers. Yes. Yeah, so this was, he won the Fortnite World Cup. Woo. He is 16 at, years old. At Arthur Ashe Stadium in yes. New York wow. City. This is very true. Now, my favorite part of the story at this point That's is amazing. That apparently he signed on with some like eSport team. So now they're saying that actually a portion, like and not an insignificant portion of that, I think it's like $600,000, has to go to this other company that he signed on. <laughs> My, the reason I bring this up is because there's this quote in, I think, the Wall Street Journal where they were like, you know, and a lot of these players, they, they don't have a good handle on the business side of being an eSport player. I'm like, he was 15 <laughs> years old when he signed this. And the, I, I'm and the shocked English, that he The English yeah. kid was 13, the guy who won, like, the doubles. <laughs> wow. Yeah. The sad side of eSports is that every single competitor in the top 100 in the Fortnite World Cup was a guy. Well, that doesn't. No, you know what? That is not sad because. (laughs) No, no, because there's no evidence that girls are worse. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that they're just as good, if not better. But they wind up, because these things are so social and there's all of the audio stuff, they wind up getting harassed off the platform. My number is $125, which is how much (laughs) you get. I'm actually serious about this. This is my number. It's $125, and it's 29,000 Sears employees had 
life insurance policies. And these life insurance policies, depending on who you were and what level you were and, and all the rest of it, these life insurance policies ranged in value from $5,000 to $2.7 million, depending on where you were in the company. And then Sears went bust, as we all know. And as part of the bankruptcy proceedings, that these people with life insurance policies are considered unsecured creditors of Sears, basically. And so the proposal is, which they it's basically take it or leave it proposal, is they all get $5,000 of unsecured credit of Sears, which works out in terms of present value, in terms of actually how much money that is, to $125. Basically, these hundreds of thousands of dollars of life insurance that you used to have and was yours when you were a Sears employee is now worth $125. So... Well done, Sears employees. Is Elizabeth you get Warren going to fix that? Elizabeth no. Warren is going to fix that. <laughs> she has a plan for that. I'm sure she does. My number is a hundred trillion. Oh, so big, oh. right? That's that's the, it's a big that's number. It's huge. big. I, yeah, I can't even. I love that number. That is the approximate number of mosquitoes in the world. Oh my god, are we going to have a mosquito edition? <laughs> I would love to. There was a story in the Times, and then I went down a mosquito hole. But so those a hundred trillion mosquitoes kill. At least 700,000 people a year. And then I found out this crazy estimate that was going to be my number, but then I changed my mind, which is that they think that mosquitoes have killed half of the humans that have ever died. Okay, so I was on <laughs> that Twitter. That just blows my mind. I, I was on Twitter with Max Rosa this week, who's mm -hmm. our World in Data guy. And this statistic is amazing. And he has been searching for the source of this statistic. Okay. And he can't find it. And that I, last one about half the people that yeah. ever lived. Okay, good. And, I'm glad and that was I number. tweeted at the guy who wrote the op ed uh -huh. in the New York uh -huh. Times. Yeah, yeah. He's but he a doesn't, book on mosquitoes. Who's written the whole book on this. Uh -huh. and I'm like, he would know. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to be very active on Twitter. Mm. So please, Slate Money listeners, if you know the source of this statistic, that 50% of all of the humans that have ever died have been killed by mosquitoes. It seems really implausible, doesn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, it could. I mean, I love it. Or even if I it's, love it. Even if it's interestingly wrong, please write in and tell us what the source is because we want to know. And I have had a low-key obsession with mosquitoes yes. for a couple of years now. And we will have, <laughs> this is an absolute promise, we will have a mosquito edition of Slate Money probably next year. And I know exactly who our guest is going to be. And it's going to be amazing. And we will, we will astonish you with an amazing edition. But until then... I think that's it for Slate Money this week. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Jessamine Molly for producing. And we are going to have a Slate Plus segment on... The latest college scam. College scams never go away. So we're going to talk about children who basically, what do they do? They divorce their parents to get Emancipation. Lower. Emancipation. Uh, this is the kind of emancipation that you do for money. We're going to talk about that on Slate Plus. Otherwise, many thanks for all of your questions over email we'll be answering them in an upcoming episode and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money With lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere Dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom Sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.